All right, everybody. So we have Dr. Michael Ruscio with us today. He is the author of Healthy Gut, Healthy You. He is a clinician and a researcher. So welcome, Dr. Ruscio. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, as I, I came across your work and, you know, initially I was pretty interested. Um, but when I, I see people talk about, you know, functional medicine and things like that, I personally am very evidence-based in my recommendations and in what I follow. And as I'm sure you've seen, there are some people in that field, or even maybe not even the clinicians, but people who read about that stuff, who they, they kind of come to conclusions that maybe the evidence doesn't support. Um, and so you, you get that a little bit. And so I, when I you know, came across more of your stuff, I was more and more excited to talk to you because I saw how evidence-based you are. Um, and the recommendations you make, they are based on you know many studies. And I think your book, you said, is close to like a thousand references, something like that, right? Yep. So, yep. yeah. And and I was I was happy to see that. So, uh, but for people listening, you know, how is what you do different than let's say a traditional MD and how you treat issues? Well, I think it might be helpful at, at first to just identify that there there's different approaches to healthcare and there is kind of this line between integrative or alternative medicine and conventional medicine unfortunately sometimes there's this competition across the lines where patients are felt like they have to do one or the other and mm -hmm. i think that's a that's a bad way of looking at it I, I think both camps really have a lot to offer patients neither camp i think will cover all of your bases and it, it's i think healthy to look at each side being able to really contribute to the well-being of a person and not operate in one to the exclusion of the other. And, and I think conventional medicine does a, a good job with identifying diseases, diagnosing those diseases, early screening, and definitely with acute care and hospital-based medicine. Um, and and there, there's kind of this, this gray area that bridges more into alternative medicine, which is a bit more preventative using things like diet, lifestyle, vitamins, and herbal medicines to either treat conditions or to prevent them. So th there, there's definitely a, a connection between the two. Um, but, but how this may differ, just to get, give a few specific examples, if someone has, this is one of the examples I, I use in, in the book, if someone had constipation, uh, and they would probably have constipation plus bloating, and then they also may notice that they're a little bit fatigued, right? It's it's unusual that someone will have just one digestive mm -hmm. symptoms. They they kind of present in this in this uh, confection. So they they go to their conventional gastroenterologist, and they have a screening that they should have for risk factors. Let's say they have a family history of colorectal cancer, and they're above the age of you know it depends on what age they should be screened at, but usually 40s, 50s, definitely in the 60s. Uh, screening may be recommended for something like this, which is a good thing to do and a great screening to have. So they, they have they go through some of the conventional workups, which is good, and then they're presented some type of laxative for their constipation. But they don't like the way that they feel on that. And uh, Lynn Zess is one example where many patients notice if they take just a little bit too much, they have diarrhea, or they may just go from constipation to diarrhea. And they say, well, you know, it works, but it works too much. I also feel like this medication is giving me some abdominal pain, and I don't feel like this medication is really solving the problem. So the, the good from the conventional camp was some of these screenings and ruling out a more potentially dangerous cause of the constipation. So it's good to have that box checked. But they may end up in the alternative and functional medicine camp seeing a gentleman like myself, and we may use something like magnesium and senna or even simply a probiotic. And uh, the right probiotic may help with the constipation, with the bloating, and also may help improve their fatigue. Uh, so 
that's you know maybe a way of describing how someone could look at at these two different camps where I do think it's important to go through an evaluation on both sides. It's just oftentimes if you're looking for more of a cause-focused solution to a problem, not always, but oftentimes I think natural medicine will, will give you the tools to tackle that. Uh, and then you want to make sure to have your screenings and follow-ups with a conventional provider and hope that nothing is ever found that requires more of a conventional medical intervention, but don't have a blind eye to that because if it is caught early, then oftentimes that makes a big difference in terms of the prognosis. Totally. And and I definitely agree. I mean, some people, they look at traditional doctors as these like evil people or they, they just ignore other right. sides. And, and I, I do think that's unfortunate um, because of and course, some of the natural they, guys do it back just, you know, just to play devil's advocate. Some of the natural right. do it back to the conventional and it's just, it's not good for anybody when we start calling the right. other side names. Yeah. And I think it's a shame. I think you can use both obviously. Um, and I just had, I mean, I think one of the problems is that the average person often does just want a, a quick solution. They don't want to hear, I, Oh, I have to change my lifestyle and diet around. I can just take this pill. Um, and, you know, that a lot of people will kind of care to that. So I think it's important to have both. And like you said, there's, there is some level where, you know, maybe traditional medications are needed or, you know, even surgeries or things like that. But obviously if we can improve it with lifestyle, that that's ideal. Sure. Um, and yeah, I actually, I just happened to see on your Instagram account that you had a dentist on, I think not too long ago, Mm -hmm. um, talking about gut health and how it relates to dental health and, you know, being a dentist myself, I was just curious, uh, what was like a major takeaway you got from that conversation? And we, we've had a couple dentists on, um, Mark Berhenna, who wrote a book, I think it's called entitled the sleep paradox. Um, he made me aware of kind of this mouth window into other areas of the body. And one of the big things that he, he tipped me off to was if someone has chronic receding gums, chronic periodontitis, or just, you know, chronic oral issues, that, that may indicate they have some sort of sleep impairment, uh, like sleep apnea or some oral airway obstruction or nasal airway obstruction that's causing them to become a mouth breather. And then when they mouth breathe, that can cause problems with the pH in the mouth and then the microbiota, and you kind of have this, this uh, downward spiral from there. So he was one of the first people that brought my attention to looking at the oral cavity as a potential window into their sleep as sleep pertains to you know their airway. And to consider looking deeper into something like obstructive sleep apnea, as an example, if you're seeing these, these chronic caries or, or receding gum or what have you. So that, that was one thing that I thought was insightful because um, I think anytime you can help someone identify sleep apnea, that's going to be a huge win for that person. Right? Sure. That's huge. Um, and then Stephen Lynn was on shortly after him uh, and also Alan Dannenberg. And they talked more about looking at the mouth as a window into one's gut health because it really is the first section of your intestinal tract. Mm -hmm. And things like malabsorption and poor diet tend to show up in the mouth with increased incidence mainly of, of dental caries and, and cavities. But also looking at someone's gut health as potentially the seat that, from which periodontitis may grow. And there's even been at least one study, to my knowledge, where uh, – periodontal disease was improved from the administration of a probiotic, which almost seems counterintuitive because it's taking something that's supposed to help your digestion and it helps all the way upstream to the mouth. Right. But it may be that part of what's going on in the mouth, uh, I'm terming it loosely here, maybe or may have a, a partial autoimmune component to it, and that may actually be rooted all the way back in the gut. So th those were a few of the things that I took away from those conversations. 
Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that that's nothing that we are taught at all in, in dental schools, not surprisingly. Um, just like I'm sure a lot of like what you do is not taught in med schools or anything like that. Right. Uh, I think being, I guess, more traditionally trained, when I hear some of those things that I've heard, you know, like Stephen Lynn talk about, uh, my first, you know, I kind of have the radar go off, like, you know, is, is that actually true? Um, I really can't comment on it because I'd have to do the research myself. So maybe one day I can, I can get him on too. But I think the ideas are really interesting. Um, and it, it sounds like it makes sense. I, I'll, something I'll have to look into more. Um, but you, you mentioned autoimmune diseases there. And something I'm wondering is, again, in, in the traditional uh, field, we kind of say that autoimmune diseases are kind of random, that we don't know what causes them. Um, do you think that there are specific things that you're noticing that tend to cause or be highly correlated with autoimmune diseases that are maybe preventable? Yeah, well, well, I think there are things, you know, even even in the most skeptical conventional literature that have been identified as, as triggering factors for autoimmunity. One is, is some type of infectious event, and, and this is known as post-infectious autoimmunity. So infection, either viral or bacterial or maybe even fungal may initiate the uh, autoimmune attack, but that oftentimes has to be combined with the right genetics. So there's this genetic predisposition usually combined with some sort of an environmental factor that then initiates autoimmunity. Uh, so infection is one, and then this is a bit more reading between the lines, but there's certainly been a number of narratives published on this, even one all the way in the New England Journal of Medicine, just looking at how the increasingly hygienic society that we live in mm -hmm. may be crippling our immune systems and leading to increased prevalence of autoimmunity. But the challenge here is sometimes that is that is taken in the wrong vein. Like, like look, you know, our society is causing all this autoimmunity, and it, it's almost used as a as a way of of attacking our modern hygienic practices, which may be a bit too hygienic, but there's another benefit that we get from that, which is a, a real decrease in some of these infectious diseases, for example, that increase infant mortality as just one example. So, you know, sometimes it's easy to argue both extremes, but then miss kind of the nuance where there may be this biological trade-off where this greatened, um, you know, you know, hygiene may also be, you know, causing some problems, yes, but also leading to a number of benefits. And it's just trying to figure out what is what is the best balance for us to strike biologically. So there's also the, the, the factor of, I guess you could say, early life developmental factors and, and how they um, impact the immune system. And there's a couple other theories known as molecular mimicry, but, but essentially it, it seems that you have the right genetics paired with an environmental triggering factor and that's what kind of potentiates autoimmunity. But I also think that some of the progressive wings of especially integrative medicine, they may be getting a bit too far ahead of themselves where they, they may be looking for preventative measures that really haven't been bore out yet. And sometimes this leads people into this very kind of doom and gloom scenario or, or, or kind of philosophy regarding autoimmunity where people are made to think that they have to live in fear of yeah. food and chemicals and certainly we want people to eat healthy and not expose themselves to chemicals unneedingly uh, but there you know, sometimes the recommendations are just so restrictive and so overzealous that people feel crippled underneath the uh, the fear um, and I should, I'm sorry, I should also mention that pregnancy is another initiating factor for autoimmunity. Um, but coming back to my, my point, um, you know, there, there's definitely something here that I think we can, we can modulate 
there, there are things that we can modulate, whether they're dietary or, or nutritional or lifestyle, that do have at least some initial evidence to support them. But we have to also be careful not to fall into this kind of uh, progressive autoimmune camp that seems to be really overzealous. And, and the reason why I make that criticism is not because I think anyone making those those um, you know difficult recommendations are ill-intended, but because I see patients come into the office who are just so fearful about everything that they're doing, yeah. um, they're, they're kind of paralyzed by fear. And so that's the other thing that I'm just trying to find that sweet spot of here's what we can do, here's what's reasonable, um, and here's what we should also avoid. Yeah, and, and you do definitely see that. I mean, if you just look online, you know, um, everybody has SIBO or Canada infections or, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that nobody has those things, but people jump to these conclusions and, and they're so afraid that this one symptom means all of these problems. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the, the conclusion you get from Internet reading is usually much worse than it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I knew that uh, in developed countries, there were higher rates of autoimmune disease. I had thought maybe it was something dietarily, but you're saying it's, it's thought that it's because of the hygiene practices? Well, we know, for example, that children who are cesarean birth rather than vaginal birth have a higher incidence of inflammatory and immune conditions. Oftentimes, and some of this, we have to look at one kind of measure and then extrapolate from there. And some measures are easy to study, like atopic dermatitis. It's just a skin condition. So oftentimes you see this increase in atopic dermatitis, maybe also allergies, like seasonal allergies. Um, but I, but there, there has been a direct trend line kind of between the hygiene of a country and the autoimmune diseases in that country. Now, it's likely multifactorial. Food mm-hmm. likely has an impact. Chemicals probably have an impact. Um, but we also know that some of these early life factors – like if you're cesarean birth or vaginal birth, if you're breastfed or formula fed, if you live on a farm, uh, that also shows protection compared to kids who live in cities. Hmm. Um, so all these things kind of um, have an impact. It's not to say that one of these is, is the thing. Uh, yeah, it's definitely multifactorial. Okay. And, um, you know, one of the autoimmune diseases I'm, I'm most familiar with is inflammatory bowel disease. And I've talked to a lot of people uh, who have inflammatory bowel disease. So I shockingly have had gastroenterologists tell me how diet has no effect on IBD. Um, and I'm not saying diet would cause IBD, but I, I think from a symptomatic standpoint, it's, it's obvious that it can help. Um, and I, I know you've, you've talked about that as well. Do you find that in a lot of cases you can manage somebody with IBD simply with diet, or do you find that they often still have to turn to some of those really harsh medications? It really depends on on the severity of the IBD. For mild cases of IBD, they typically make a couple dietary changes. I shouldn't say typically, but it's not untypical to see someone with mild inflammatory bowel disease make a few dietary changes and have little to no symptoms for the rest of their life. Whereas at the severe end, they may have done one diet, then another, then a third, then a fourth that kind of combined all the diet rules and it was a super clean and restrictive diet, still barely felt any better, then went on probiotics, then went on herbal anti-inflammatories, then went on a special liquid diet and still are, you know, not, you know, not devoid of any kind of symptoms. Uh, so it, it, depend, it does depend on the, on the severity of the condition. Um, and I would agree with your gastroenterologist that I, I wouldn't say that diet causes inflammatory bowel disease, although some sure. studies have looked at dietary factors that are predictive. And unsurprisingly, there seems to be this general trend that a processed food, generally unhealthy diet, high in 
unhealthy fats and sugars tends to correlate with a higher risk compared to an unprocessed diet tends to uh, lead to a, a decreased risk. Um, but out, outside of that, there are certainly some diets that seem to, at least from a preliminary body of evidence, show benefit. One diet uh, in the using the paleo diet, specifically actually the autoimmune paleo diet, did show the ability to um, improve the symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease. And there have been a few trials looking at symptom management with a low FODMAP diet. Um, and then there, I mean, in, in Europe, it's very common practice to use, at least as I understand it, an elemental diet, which is essentially a liquid meal replacement diet for, for right. a short period um, to quell the symptoms. So it depends, I think, on, on how well-trained your gastroenterologist is outside of the drug model. Um, but there's definitely data there, at least preliminary data for other therapies. Not to mention, I'm sorry, I should, I should continue that there have been a number of trials looking at either probiotics or herbs against some of the frontline medications like mesalazine and shown fairly equivalent benefit. So right. there, there's definitely some tools in the natural therapy toolkit, but then some people may need those, right? The, the, the diet plus the natural tools may take them from screamingly flared down to only mildly flared. Mm -hmm. And then they, so that's a win right there, but they may also need a medication on top of that to get them totally to where they want to be. Right. Uh, and are you familiar with the specific carbohydrate diet? Mm -hmm. yeah, another diet that I think has merit. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there may be one study, I believe. Um, I've seen two or three analyses. now. Mm, okay. So I, I may have missed a couple of those. So that's great. That's great to know. Yeah. But, but like you said, um, they were often compared to mesalamine and, and that's why, you know, cause I, I agree that I don't think, um, at least to our knowledge, that any diet causes IBD. But, you know, we definitely have studies showing diets help symptomatically. And I've seen a couple now um, showing at least a specific carbohydrate diet, maybe the autoimmune paleo um, had similar uh, benefits as the mesalamine. So it's at least a tool to use. Um, yep. Regarding the uh, elemental, something I, I found interesting with that was that they maybe you've seen more studies than I have on it, but the elemental diets, they seem to have really good success rates in children um, and then lower success rates in adults. But when they used a tube to do it for adults, they had the same success rates. And their conclusion was that it's because mm. adults cheat on the diet. And so when you're, they're forced <laughs> to eat it, um, it actually works well. Now, are you talking about the formulas or is there a way you could make it your own rather than having to buy these expensive formulas? Well, the the good news is that there's a newer crop of formulas that that both um, are are fairly palatable that, that don't taste her terrible. Some of the early prescriptions like Vivanex were, were were pretty hard to muster. Um, the, uh, the the there's newer formulas that don't taste quite as bad and are pre-made for you. Um, so yeah, I mean the, there are formulas that you can buy. Some of these you have to go through a doctor. Some of these you can ob obtain commercially. But there are formulas that you can buy and make at home. There's also homemade formulas. They don't taste as good, in my opinion. They give you a little bit more control over the ingredients, but um, they're they're a bit more. It's it's the amino acids that are used in in the homemade formula. They have kind of this putrid taste to them, so it, it makes yeah. it a bit harder to to do. Yeah, I've seen people suggest just buying literally like pure dextrose, amino acids, and MCT oil. Um, I imagine that would taste horrible, <laughs> but it would probably work. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you find that, I think because I'd seen you talk about how in fasting and some of these intermittent fasting protocols seem to help people's gut issues. Um, 
do you know if they accounted for calories there? Like, were they simply just eating less and that helped? Or were they actually packing the same calories in a smaller window? I, I know of two studies looking at this, and, and they were both observational studies that were looking at fasting for religious purposes. Okay. So you probably don't get a fantastic read based upon that because you don't actually know what they're doing. But I think the, the trend is probably that when people substantially decrease their caloric intake, that can help with, in one observational study, IBS, and in one observational study, IBD. And certainly in, in my practice, and also in the book, one of the, one of the first things to have people try to figure out is what their optimal meal frequency is. For some people, small frequent meals, three or four a day works really well. Uh, this is especially for people who get tired and hangry and lightheaded and irritable. But then there are other people that notice they feel better digestively when they don't eat. And if they skip a meal, for example, they don't feel any fatigue or any hunger or any brain fog. In fact, they may feel really sharp and energetic. Um, and so for some people just figuring out, did you do two meals in a day or four meals in a day? Or, or for some people, what they do is they fast one day a week. Like Sunday, they may fast the entire day. Or two days a week, they may skip breakfast and just have lunch and dinner. So to your question – you know, the, the most effective for the gut is probably going down to zero calories, but mm -hmm. that's not always probably going to be um, achievable for some people. So in that case, I think even a reduction in, in calories and just kind of consolidating your meal window, it seems to be, you know, beneficial digestively anyway. Right. I guess what I was getting there is, because uh, I, I do agree for sure that lower calories seem to, you know, help kind of give the, the gut a rest. It's just some people seem to indicate and, and this goes in like the fitness world as well. People say, oh, I had all these great benefits from intermittent fasting. I lost all this fat. Um, but every study I've ever seen on it, when matched for calories, they don't lose any more fat or anything like that. Mm. I, I haven't seen any with matched calories for gut health. So I, I certainly imagine if you just take away a meal every day, you're going to improve you know, how you're feeling because you're just simply eating mm -hmm. less. Um, I guess maybe we don't have the data on if you were to cram the same calories. No, I, 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 think, I think there is looking at metabolic conditions um, like high cholesterol and, and overweight. Uh, and, and Jason Fung wrote a, a he's a, neuro, a nephrologist, wrote, wrote a great book about this. I believe it's entitled Your Complete Guide to Fasting. And I'm fairly certain in that book he references at least one study that kept calories the same, but put those calories either dispersed over three meals or two meals. And they found that the, the, the group condensing their window to two meals, even though the calories were the same, saw an improvement in their body composition. Right. Okay. I'll have to look at that. That was um, Jason Fung, you said? Jason Fung, uh, I believe it's a complete guide to fasting. And I'm, I'm fairly certain on that because that was one of the same things that I wondered, which mm -hmm. was, was it, was it, was a benefit me metabolically from reducing calories or could you stay isocaloric and then reduce the window um, and it, it does, and it makes sense if you think about it, cause that's a longer period that your body's in that fasting state. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have more of these like signaling molecules or gluconeogenesis and more of a kind of insulin sensitivity, uh, potentiating time. Um, so yeah, you, you may be able to have the same amount of calories in two meals to see metabolically the effect digestively. I would think the same thing would apply digestively, but I don't know if it's been looked at in that kind of careful manner for digestive maladies. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, for anything else, I, I just find, I don't know if you ever do intermittent fasting. I, I personally do just because I think it's so convenient. And I, I also am one of those people who feels sharper when they're, they're fasting personally. Yeah. I, I fast also, but I do find if I, you know, if I fast too much, there, there is this kind of cliff that I'll fall off of if I fast too much where I'll start to have some fatigue. Um, but usually if I can do two days a week of like a 16 to 18 hour fast on two of those days, and I, I do pretty mm -hmm. well with that. 
cool. Um, so I had seen you say that a lot of people, you know, first people hear about probiotics and then they hear about prebiotics and they think they are going to get all these like benefits from prebiotics, but then some people can actually feel worse. Um, what are some of the misconceptions that people have regarding prebiotics? Mm, great question. Maybe about four years ago, there was this huge, and I mean, it still exists today, but there was, there was this boom, almost like a supernova in interest regarding prebiotics because mm-hmm. we, we figured out that prebiotics can feed gut bacteria. And, and when that was observed in conjunction with looking at people from oftentimes healthier societies, like hunter-gatherer societies, they had oftentimes more bacteria or more diverse bacteria in their intestines. And then when we looked at people who were sick compared to people who were healthy, we also saw this general trend of having either more bacteria or more diverse bacteria in their intestines. So we thought, well, if we give people who are ill these prebiotics that feed bacteria, we can revolutionize healthcare and people's wellness by using prebiotics. And like many things, when there's a fad, there's you know there's maybe a good pearl in that fad, but oftentimes it's way you know being over leveraged and over extrapolated. And this was a case with prebiotics. There's definitely some benefit that one can derive from prebiotics, but I think it was it was really and it still continues to be very much so overstated. Mm. Um, they they can vector benefit for people, but the rule of thumb I, I like to operate under is the more symptomatic someone is digestively, the more cautious I am with prebiotics out of the gate. And there's something I, I usually don't use in, in people who are highly symptomatic, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain, reflux, um, because there's the potential for a flare. And this is where you see Either looking at trials in the low FODMAP diet, which reduces prebiotics, or looking at trials supplementing with prebiotics, you see that the low FODMAP diet has been very helpful for IBS and for IBD in helping to quell symptoms. Mm -hmm. And some of the prebiotic trials using supplemental prebiotics, while the prebiotics do show benefit, they also do suffer from a fairly high level of adverse events that are digestive in nature. So exacerbations of gas or bloating or or constipation or diarrhea. Uh, So they do have a time and a place they can help. There is some evidence showing that they can help with with gut conditions, but there's also evidence showing that they may flare someone. So because they can kind of cut either way, I... And I've, I've observed clinically that people who are most symptomatic digestively tend to be at a higher risk for a flare from prebiotics. I usually leave those until kind of the end phase and consider an experiment with them then. Okay. So um, I've seen that as well with you know, the low FODMAP symptomatically. Do those symptoms tend to actually lead to, I guess, you know, permeability and things like that or is it is it simply just uncomfortable does that make sense is it a true health issue or is it just discomfort that's a good question i I think we're early in our understanding here but from the evidence that has been published we we have observed that a low fodmap diet not only can reduce symptoms but can also reduce leaky gut and can help to normalize the density of serotonin cells in the gut which are important for Mm pain and for motility and also this this other similar um transmitter neurotransmitter known as uh, pyy which helps also to regulate motility um so again well well, i don't think we fully know it it, it does seem that there may be something healing to the low fodmap diet um but i should also mention that you know this is something that we should we should use a low fodmap diet 
in the shorter term to help someone improve how they're feeling and then try to gradually broaden their diet as much as we can over time. Now, some people will be sensitive to a couple FODMAP foods. They may have to practice more diligent, longer-term avoidance. Um, but I, I just make this remark because every once in a while, there's some angry nutritionist somewhere who is complaining about the low FODMAP diet causing all these these nutrient deficiencies if, mm. if the the strict first four-week protocol was adhered to forever, which yeah. almost no one recommends to be done right. uh, and un unfortunately overlooks the fact that for a, a suffering patient, they are finally not having diarrhea and abdominal pain and bloating for the first time in a long time. Um, so, it, yeah, we want to use the diet. I would say use it until you see a peak, wait until you've peaked for about a month, and then try to reintroduce some of the foods um, that you've cut out and try to end up in the broadest diet possible in the long term. And are you just kind of following the pattern of like an elimination diet, almost just seeing one at a time, can I tolerate this? And, and how soon does it usually react in people? You know, do they have to wait a week to see or would they know by the next day I tolerate this food? Good question. Most people tend to react within 30 minutes to oh, wow. three hours or latest it's been the next day. And maybe on, in a great uh, occasion, someone would have a couple days of a delay, but usually it's fairly instantaneous or the next day. So as long as you're working through this somewhat methodically, it's not too hard to kind of figure out. And sometimes what ends up happening is people don't have super overt return or returning of their symptoms, but rather they start eating a lot more FODMAPs, and then three weeks later, they're like, man, I just I just feel like I'm generally kind of regressed. Mm -hmm. And so then, then they want to pull things back down. And through time and observation, someone may notice I have this certain kind of vague threshold that I have to eat you know, this much or less, and I'll be okay. And if that sounds complicated, I'm, I'm sure there's a food anyone can think of, you know, like myself. If I have... One espresso a day, I'm fine. If I have two, I'm okay. If I have more than two, I just I don't feel well. Right. So I, I know that there's kind of this threshold that I need to stay underneath. And certain people may notice the same thing. You know, if they get ice cream every once in a while, they can do this much. But if they do this much, they're going to have a stomach ache. So it's not that foreign of a concept just to try to learn how your own system reacts to a certain food group with some time and observation, and then get a sense for okay, you know, I can have this much, and I need to be careful not to overdo it. Gotcha. Yeah, I think because um, I know some people will say, oh, you have to wait. You know, you might have a reaction in like a month or something. It sounds like you're thinking you should you should yeah. know within a short period of time. Yeah. Um, some people are funny with <laughs> with the recommendations around diet. And you know, I don't I don't mean that in, in disparage, though it may have sounded that way. It's just it's disconcerting to me to see patients who get pulled into that. Yeah. And they are they don't know what to do. They come in and they are just so lost because they don't feel well and now they're going back a month ago and trying to chronicle everything that they ate a month ago up into a current yeah. and it can just drive you crazy. And and I, I don't see any really good evidence showing that the food reactions are are that delayed, with the exception of you know, if if you're wondering about Again, using FODMAPs as an example, if you're eating kind of lower FODMAP for a while and now you're, you've are been eating higher FODMAPs and you didn't notice any acute reactions, but after a month or two or three, you're noticing your digestion is generally kind of regressed, then yeah. you may just be fortunate to not have any acute symptoms, but you have been constantly eating more than your system can handle and now your system's a bit grumbling and you have to bring things back down a little bit. So in that case, I suppose that's true, but not this 
you know, hard to identify one food trigger that you need to methodically yeah. journal to, to determine yeah. that, I, that I think does more harm for people than it does good. Yeah. And, and I mean, I will admit it is hard because when you have these strategies, you know, we're, we're really taking into account everything. So sleep and diet and all these things. And so I think that's one of the reasons that the medical community is a little slower to accept it. It's, you know, they, they probably think that these things are helpful. It's more just like when you look at a study, um, even the ones I mentioned on the specific carbohydrate diet, what they did in that study, they just let them eat anything allowed on that diet. When in reality, what you're supposed to do is start very basic, add one food, wait three days, add, which of course they're just not going to do for a study. It's almost impossible not to mention all the other factors. So a lot of these things, like, are we going to really have a, a randomized controlled study where somebody tries out this one? It's just, it's just not really yeah. that realistic. And it's, um, and it's, it's a good point that you're making also, which is I think sometimes in, in some of these dietary camps, they're, they're, they're too idealistic with their rules. Mm. And, and well, you got to do this for three days and then this for the next six and that for the next nine. And I found oftentimes in clinical practice, you don't have to be that methodical nor that meticulous. You can just make the dietary change, generally speaking, and mm -hmm. get yourself in proximity. And it turns out that that's what most people will, will be able to comply with, whereas only a small percentage of highly motivated people will be able to do this, you know, three days on only soup and then three more days of, you know, these, these kind of phased reintroductions. Yeah. And again, I think they, they – probably can be helpful. But the question I wonder is, is that going to be significantly more beneficial than doing this in a more simplified manner? And I think for most people, they can probably get away with doing these things pretty, you know, pretty easily, which is good. I mean, it means yeah. that that the kind of holistic community can make their messaging a bit more simplistic. And then that will allow us to hopefully reach more people because it's a it's an easier message to ingest. Yeah, for sure. And uh, something I wanted you to quickly touch on is I know you had mentioned that there are three different types of probiotics. Um, and sometimes people will try a probiotic and they'll think, oh, it didn't work. And they try another one and it didn't work. But it's the same kind. Um, so right. what are those three and, and what different benefits can we expect from them? So the three categories, and, and you see this appearing in, in some of the research literature. I, I had originally just termed these three categories because when you look at all the probiotic studies, they're usually either using one type, a second type, or a third type. Mm -hmm. And it turns out after a while, some of the researchers were saying, okay, yeah, you know, there's generally, really there's, there's probably four categories, but one you can't get in the U.S. So I just really consolidate mm -hmm. the conversation to three to focus on what's relevant. But you have your category one, as I term them, which are your lactobacillus and bifidobacterium predominated blends. So you'll have a few different lactobacillus on the label, a few different bifidobacterium species. And that's your category one. And then category two is a Saccharomyces boulardii, which that would be the only strain in there, and it's a healthy type of fungus. Mm -hmm. And then category three, you have your uh, soil base or spore forming, as they're sometimes called. And these are usually different strains of bacillus. So bacillus aptilis, but bacillus coagulans. And, and those are the three categories. And to your, to your comment a moment ago, yes, what happens sometimes is people try different product names, but they're all the same category. Mm -hmm. And they keep having the same experience, and they're banging their head against the wall like, oh, you know, probiotics never seem to work for me, or probiotics, you know, whatever, insert their reaction here. Yeah. And they're not realizing that they keep trying the same type of formula time and time again. So that, that's the utility of, of looking at this in, in the kind of category system. Gotcha. Are there different expected benefits from each one or is it just kind of like you mm. got to know what you're good question some will lead you believe that there are um and 
Yeah, I don't know that we have enough data to fully really answer this question, but what I've seen is one nuanced probiotic formula. So let's say you have a category one, and not everyone will be the same, excuse me. Not every category one will, will be exactly the same, but they have like a 70% overlap. So you have one formula from category one, and they publish a study showing that that probiotic can improve constipation. And then boom, it's marketed like crazy for constipation. Yeah. And this is where I think the evidence-based providers are wrong because the evidence-based providers now say, this is the only probiotic you should use for constipation. And mm -hmm. then if you're going to use a probiotic for something else, it needs to be a different one. So now someone's looking at like seven different probiotic formulas for all their different symptoms. Yeah. Only to find, and I, I've seen this evolve, six months later, another probiotic formula, different than the first, also shows a benefit for constipation. So this is where you, you, you want to be evidence-based, yes, but not evidence-limited. And you don't want to limit your thinking into this box of what's been published. I've noticed that any probiotic can help or potentially even flare constipation. And I think the reason for this is because you have over a thousand bacteria, not to mention, I believe, of around 300, although it may be slightly off in that number, fungus, plus protozoa in, and viruses in your gut. So when you put a 10-strain probiotic into that whole ecosystem, it's really hard to know how that is going to affect one person who has a somewhat unique ecosystem compared to another system, not to mention that each individual also has a unique immune system which houses that ecosystem. So it's very hard to predict what effect one certain probiotic is going to have in the ecosystem compared to another. So I think the best way to go about this until we have – highly meticulous data that shows this is the best probiotic for you know, whatever uh, whatever condition would be to simply try one of the each one of the categories of probiotics and see what kind of effect that you have and and I should also mention that we will probably find in my opinion that probiotics tend to have this general realm of influence like a number of symptoms that they can positively influence and that will happen for some people and it may not happen for others and the reason for that is the, the probiotics are kind of nudging that ecosystem. So it's not like a drug. Like this drug will lower cholesterol. It's right. nice. We're putting some life into a community of life, and we're hoping it's going to have a, a beneficial effect on that ecosystem. And for many people it will, but for some people it won't. And, and this is where, you know, sometimes you get into trouble when we think in an overly reductionistic fashion where we have this one compound with this one effect. Sometimes when you're trying to modulate an ecosystem as the gut is, you know, we're not we're not smart enough. We don't have um, the ability to make the ecosystem do whatever we want, but rather I think the approach is looking at this like a gardener. We're going to try to cultivate the healthiest internal environment that we can, and then theoretically from that healthy environment, we should see a growth of a healthy individual devoid of symptoms rather than an unhealthy individual with, with numerous symptoms springing up. Interesting. Yeah, I've actually – so I've tried probiotics a lot. Um, Never just like over-the-counter ones, but like the VSL number three. And I've actually made my own uh, yogurt, fermented yogurt, and bought fermented products. I've never really seen a benefit from them. Either I noticed nothing or a worsening of symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, but now that I, I think about it, they've probably all been in that first category you mentioned. I don't know if I've, I've really seen the other two too much. So that's something maybe to look into. Yeah, well, v VSL3 would be a category one. 
Oftentimes you get a, a little bit of each category in a fermented food, but that's not mm. it's not guaranteed to be the case. And you also may not be able to get a clinical dose, meaning if there's if there's some type of imbalance and you're trying to kind of dislodge that imbalance using the probiotic, that may not be enough to do it through a food. Although I do think foods are good for a long-term strategy. Mm. You may need something with a bit higher of a dose to you know help dislodge an imbalance. So it's definitely worth experimenting, I think. Gotcha. Um, and I, I kind of like to end on an actionable step for people. So uh, obviously we've talked about a lot of different causes of issues people could have. And I think um, I, I really do like the functional medicine world, the idea behind it, you know, let's look at the root causes rather than just covering it up, but it can get very complicated, especially, I mean, sometimes GI issues can manifest extra intestinally without any noticeable GI problems. So, yeah. um, you know, you know, other than buying your book, which I think everybody should go ahead and do, uh, where can people start to get an idea of like, okay, I have these problems. Do I even know it's a gut issue? And if so, you know, how do I start to attack it? Yeah, great point. And I mean, the, the gift is also the, the curse, meaning you can, you can have something in the gut, an imbalance in the gut can manifest as gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, these digestive symptoms, but you could have none of those symptoms and only fatigue, depression, pimples, and joint pain. So because of that, it's hard to say, well, these are the classic symptoms of a problem in the gut. I mean, obviously, if you have constipation, bloating, and abdominal pain, that's a pretty good indicator, a pretty good flag that there's a problem there. But it's not to say that your joint pain, fatigue, and insomnia may not be caused by a problem in the gut. So I think a, a good way to work through this is, is through a process of elimination, where I would first start with improving your, your, your diet with kind of the general diet advice fruits, vegetables, non-processed foods, no sugars, everything whole and fresh, just some of those basics combined with exercising and making sure you're getting at least seven, eight hours of sleep a night and, and drinking ample water, just some of those fundamental pillars. And then reevaluate. If that doesn't help get you over your symptoms, then I would consider going through a process to help optimize the health of your gut because there's such a, a diverse array of symptoms that may benefit from that gut approach that I would say start there. And, and I also have come to find that if you have all these different things you're thinking about tackling, thyroid, adrenal, toxins, detox, oftentimes if you get the problem in the gut addressed, what you thought was a thyroid problem or an adrenal problem, those symptoms end up going away. It's not a guarantee, but I, I think the, the highest likelihood of seeing a beneficial reaction or, or um, you know, improvement would be from first getting those basic health pillars in place and then taking steps to optimize your gut. And I'd say two things people could do to help optimize their gut. Try either the paleo diet or just a loose iteration of the paleo diet. It doesn't have to be this crazy, like you can never you know, have a sip of wine, but try to be 80% compliant with, with the paleo diet. Or if you've tried the paleo diet, try the low FODMAP diet. And you can fairly easily find a handout on the internet for those. We also have handouts that we we use in our book and give either one of those diets at least two to three weeks. And if you're improving, ride that wave until, uh, until you see where you plateau. And if you're not improving on the paleo, try the low FODMAP. And then if you're not trying on the low, improving the low FODMAP, I'd say grab a copy of the book because then it'll walk you through what to do from there. Awesome. That's great advice. And uh, so people have the book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You. Uh, you're on Instagram. I think it's just your name, right? Dr. Ruscio? Yep. Um, anywhere else people can find your work? Oh, my website is drrusho.com, just D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. You can find out about the book there, and we have a weekly article, video, and podcast. 
Uh, and pretty much everything we do is, is kind of hubbed through the, uh, the website there. Oh, very cool. All right. Well, thanks again for talking. Yeah, thank you. Been a pleasure.